Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to another episode of Adding Context. Today I'm speaking to Jesse Kramer. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and what you do? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. Um, so by day, I'm a mechanical engineer, but uh, the reason why I'm here and, and really one of my big passions in life is that I, I write a financial education blog, uh, personal finance and investing, focused on a lot of what I would consider everyday topics and trying to break those topics down uh, into as simple terms as possible. Because uh, one of the barriers to entry, I think, in personal finance and finance education is that some of the math, some of the phrases, some of the terms uh, can be a little intimidating. And through my own experiences, I found that once I learned what was really going on, it wasn't as intimidating as I once thought. And so I try to spread that to my readers by by breaking things down, explaining to them things that they might not know, and uh, helping them in their in their financial lives. Got it. Awesome. I agree. I think that that's, you know, you, you pick up a, a Wall Street Journal and if you're not familiar with a lot of the verbiage, you can get kind of that glazed over and, you know, daring headlights kind of feeling. So um, why don't we kind of start things off with why it's crucially important to be at least mildly financially intelligent? Right. Yeah. It's a, a terrific question and it's, uh, it can be answered probably a bunch of different ways, but Without sounding too, um, you know, melodramatic, uh, personal finance education is is kind of a must-have in in modern life, at least in my opinion. Um, there are a lot of potential pitfalls uh, that are that are out there for you to go down the wrong path, and and put yourself in a situation where you are uh, in debt into such a level that. You know, retirement might not be an option for you, or you put yourself in a certain situation where you can't live where you want to live. Uh, you can't, I mean, let alone some of the potentially worse scenarios, which are, you know, you can't provide a, a safe living environment for yourself or your family, or you can't put food on the table for yourself or your family. Assuming you have those bases covered, there's that kind of next level of, um, of can you meet some of your some of the things that you, you know, want but might not need. Um, there's a really good concept, Michael, that I talk about sometimes called the fulfillment curve, and it's simply it's a it's a upside down uh, U, if you will, parabola if you're math based, or you know half of the McDonald's arches. It's an arch, and and it kind of says on the x-axis you have uh, uh, money spent, and on the y-axis you have happiness. And what it says is, you know, you need a little bit of money in order to enjoy life, right? Because you, you have to get the things you need. It's nice to have a little on the side for some entertainment, for some fun, to plan for the future. Um, we can get into the rest of the fulfillment curve later, which says there comes a point where the more you spend, you actually potentially become less happy because you're surrounding yourself with things that you have to stress about. And negative returns. Right, right. Um, but getting back to the real, the real crux of your question, um, you can get away in life, not understanding the rules of basketball and you can get away in life, uh, not understanding how a bus engine works. 
there are a lot of things you can get away not understanding, but not understanding the basics of your personal finance is something I don't think you can really get away with in life. Agreed. Um, I, I noticed that some people who are significantly younger than me, about half my age or so, um, that there's an overwhelming number of people who have no idea or concept of how to write out a check, balance a checkbook, you know, some things that I see as common sense and, and easy and I, one of those things that I thought everybody kind of knew. And I'm starting to see that there's a, a the younger generation just it, that's lost somewhere. Um, why do you think it's so crucial that we really educate the youth and at what age do you think is kind of that appropriate age to really start creating that in them? Mm-hmm. That's a Another good question. Now, in defense of people not being able to write checks, <laughs> I, uh, I'm just trying to think of myself. I can't remember the last time I wrote a check personally, Michael. Now, and, and, and why? Well, it's because, well, it's because uh, sometimes I pay in cash. Uh, a lot of times I pay using a credit card, which I pay off at the end of every month, which is an important thing, right? I don't carry a credit card balance from month to month. I think, you know, I know you had mentioned earlier talking about credit scores. We can talk about that one later. Um, but the idea of writing checks and balancing a checkbook, see balancing a checkbook is something I think is vitally important. It does have a, a, a parallel activity to it. Even if you don't write checks, which is balancing a budget, right? Is, you know, the, this, this, it's a crucial understanding in my opinion. Uh, I'm a bit of a zealot on it. <laughs> I, uh, record every financial transaction that occurs in my life. So if I buy a $2 candy bar because I'm hungry and I just needed to stop on the throughway, that goes into my budget. I say, oh, yep, groceries, $2 candy bar. Uh, and so every month I record when I get paid, I got paid this much, that's money going in. I assign jobs to my dollars. $1,000 goes to my mortgage. $400 goes to my car payment. All those dollars get jobs. As the month progresses, I record that certain actions have happened that I've bought things that I've paid certain things. And now those, those dollars have been used. They're gone. I, I don't have access to them anymore. Um, and that way I can plan ahead and say each month I'm saving a few hundred dollars over the course of a year. I can, I can save for that vacation that I want, or I can, I can invest money for my retirement, those kind of things. Um, there's a great quote, uh, by Peter Drucker, who was a, a management guru in the 50s and 60s. And he said, you cannot manage what you do not measure. And I take that to mean, you know, you cannot improve something if you're not even aware of what's going on. Right. And so I think by measuring your personal finance through balancing a checkbook or through uh, maintaining a budget, by doing that measurement, you can then manage your personal finances and improve them. Uh, and that's really the goal. What are your thoughts on applications and programs like Quicken um, that help you or are supposed to make it easier to maintain your budget and keep a, a real good view of what your financial situation is. Yeah. Uh, my dad used Quicken growing up. So I, I remember watching him use it. I've never actually used it myself, but I, I can picture it in my head. And, and I think if it works for you, it's absolutely worth using. Personally, I use uh, an app that I can use on my phone or I can log into a web browser and log in. It's called You Need a Budget or YNAB, Y-N-A-B for short. Um, it's got a fairly cult 
following. A lot of people uh, really, really enjoy it. Kind of, it's, it's a bit of one of the smaller apps that are out there, one of the smaller budgeting apps. Um, one of the downsides of it is that it does cost, I think it's now $8 a month, which for some people they say, well, isn't the point that I'm kind of trying to save money here? Why, why would I spend on a budgeting app? I understand that. Um, I think probably the most popular budgeting tool is Mint, Part M-I-N-T. And that's another one that's an app you can use from your phone or you can log on to any browser and log into your account. Um, I think one of the reasons why people and, and I like we enjoy you need a budget is that it comes with a set of rules. And it's, it's not only the tool, like the, the spreadsheet where you log data and where you, you set aside money for certain jobs. It comes with a bit of a, um, a, a book of rules, if you will, that you're supposed to follow. And by following these rules, not only do you use the tool better, but but it also kind of bleeds into the rest of your life and, and helps you kind of see the big picture in personal finance. All that being said, Michael, I've been asked a lot by friends and, and readers, um, can I just use a spreadsheet or, or pencil and paper? Can I just kind of put down $2,000 a month on a piece of paper, divvy that out in any way I want? And the answer is absolutely, right? Whatever works for you. Um, I think the important thing, as with many systems or habits, is that you just find something that works for you and you find something that you can stick with. Uh, so there are a lot of different options. Consistent, consistency being key. Um, Definitely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's there's a number of apps that I've kind of played around with, uh, like Prism, you know, once it, they round up your purchases, like uh, Acorns. Mm, um, yes. They're supposed to put into a an account to have a better interest rate and things like that so you can you know, match some a small uh, nutshell of savings. <laughs> right, um, right. Yep, yep. If you were to create a curriculum for, say, high school or, or you know, seventh, eighth graders, what components would you th- include in that for kids for a, uh, a good understanding and a baseline for financial education? Excellent question. Um, and I think... <laughs> It's such a good question um, because it's it can be easy for someone in my position, say, who I've been thinking about this topic a lot for the last four or five years and, and writing about it every week for the last two years. It can be easy for me to kind of forget what it's like to be a beginner. Right. And then the crux of your question is we need to go back to beginners and teach them what they need to know. Uh, so I think my, my mind jumps to a few different important topics. Um, the first one is budgeting. This has a baseline skill. It's tough because it's, it's a little boring. And I think it, it takes a little bit of life experience to be, say, 25 or 30 and realize that you are in a, a death spiral, a personal finance death spiral. All of a sudden, then budgeting becomes a little more interesting. <laughs> yeah. Because right? your, your, your life depends on it. There's so, consequence attached to it. Right. Right. Now, that being said, I do think there's a way to, to make an interesting and entertaining curriculum about budgeting. I'm just saying, you know, hey, boys and girls, we're going to pretend like you have $2,500 and go out on Google, go to our local town, figure how much rent costs here in town, figure how much it costs to spend food down at the local grocery store. Think about, you know, what are the top 20 things you want to spend money on on a regular basis? Okay, so there, I think there can be a budgeting curriculum because I think it's that important. Uh, a second one that is going to be vital is understanding 
the concept of interest and interest rates. And that goes in, right? Interest is this a double-edged sword in personal finance, it right? Is, yes. when, <laughs> when it's associated with a credit card or your student loan that you're about to take because you want to go to college, interest works against you. And understanding the way interest works against you uh, is, is something that many people don't understand until they're 22 and now have to pay off their student loans or 24 or something along those lines. Um, but we can also show students the, the good side of interest, which is the kind of interest that you might earn uh, from investing, whether it's investing in the stock market or investing in, in real estate or something along those lines, um, how interest can compound, how it builds on itself, how you can put in a, a great little um, heuristic that I talk about on my blog and, and that I wrote a, a fun article about is that let's assume you invest the same amount every uh, week or every month, whatever the period is. Let's say you invest a thousand dollars a month, a hundred dollars a month, every month from the time you're 20 until the time you're 60 in the stock market. And we're going to use an average return of 7% per year. It's a reasonable expectation from the stock market over time. The money you put in in your 20s, just the one decade, is going to end up having a higher value than the money you put in in your 30s and your 40s and your 50s combined. Now, why? Because that money you put in early had a chance to compound time and time and time again, right. more so than the money you put in later in life. So if you show that to a 18-year-old, you say, hey, instead of, you know, blowing your money on uh, that Mustang, if you maybe buy a Honda Civic instead and think about investing some of that money, here's how much it could grow over time. Uh, I think that'd be a good lesson to teach to some young, some young people. That's a pretty good start because I think you can start with those two uh, those two topics and kind of branch out in a lot of different directions. Right. Um, and, and it's kind of this Pareto principle or 80, 20 principle where if you kind of catch some of the big things, you teach some people, some, uh, some terms and, and some, some, some of the language of money as you go along, they can start to pick up and, uh, pick up from there and start to teach themselves after that. Right. I think there's a, there's a number of things that I think are, life skills that people need, knowing how to change a tire, knowing how to jump start mm -hmm. a car, um, personal finances. You know, there's, there's certain things like that that I think everybody should know. And when I was in high school, we actually had a class on finance. And we mm -hmm. it was a lot of it was kind of geared, at least to start out the way you had suggested. Pick a job, you know, reasonable job, nothing that's you know extravagant where you're going to make millions of dollars a year, but, you know, middle of the road kind of income kind of thing. We were told to go out and you know, grab a newspaper, find an apartment to rent, find a car, you know, just so we can get some baseline numbers for the budget that fell within our, our monthly income. <laughs> um, the other thing I think that people need to get a better understanding on, but at the same time, I think our government needs to maybe reassess is taxes. And, and mm. um, I think that's something that people don't forget, they expect, oh, I make $25 an hour, they do the calculations, but they never really know definitively what that take-home net is going to be. Yeah. Uh, that is a great point, and that's a great point that I that I didn't touch on. Um, 
and you're right. I mean, I'm thinking even now as an adult, like, yes, I do my own taxes. Um, but every year I kind of look at my tax forms and think it's a little complicated. <laughs> and there's a, there, there are a lot of fields that I don't fill out. And I'm kind of looking at myself saying, do, should I, should I fill this one out? Does this one apply to me? Do I care about this, this, uh, this grant or, you know, this, this benefit? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, that's a good point. Uh, that's a good point, Michael. And just simply the difference between the federal and the state and your local, right? uh, you know, and, and I think, uh, I know your last guest, Michael, I think was from just North of New York city. Are, are you based in New York? I'm based in Jersey. What's, based in Jersey. Right. So I, I'm in not, middle Jersey. <laughs> okay. Okay. I don't know. I don't know what New Jersey's taxes are like. My assumption would be they, they've got a, a state tax, like New York has a state income tax. Um, but some yeah. states don't. We're, we're about seven. Um, I think okay. Delaware, which is a state that borders us. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm close enough to Philly that there's a commercial for a jewelry store that their big boast is come down to our Delaware store and you don't pay any taxes at all. It's like, yeah, but you know, it, that's one of the things. And, and, you know, I, for the most part, have done my own taxes for the last handful of years. Um, and I, there was a few times where I've done my taxes and I'm like, how are these numbers the way they are when, you know, I'm having the you know, most amount of taxes taken out. Um, and I still end up, the numbers seem to be a little weird and mm. it's, it, the government really could do a lot of things, I think, to streamline that. I mean, I know yeah. there's a lot of talk right now about, you know, taxing people make over $400,000 and, you know, millionaires taxes and, and things like that. Well above my pay grade. <laughs> um, yeah. But, you know, I think if people start looking at things from a perspective of um, I'm doing my part to pay for education and instead of complaining about having to pay higher taxes for an education, the understanding that the benefit of an educated society is a better society. Right. Um, which I, I'm, I'm struggling sometimes to, to see where that is right now in our, in our current climate in our country. Um, I think I would love to see a way for the government to make it fair. And as someone who has run for a political office, one of my concepts was looking into taxes and, and what we can do to make the taxes fair. And there's always an argument for one way, like a flat tax. And then there's an mm -hmm. argument for why you should put the percentage at a certain rate for somewhere else and, and change it that way. You know, the argument for flat taxes, then you can't say that you're not paying your fair share. If everybody's paying mm -hmm. 20%, everybody pays 20% regardless of what their income is. Mm -hmm. And obviously, somebody who's making a million dollars, their 20% is going to be significantly higher than somebody paying $100,000 a year or making $100,000 a year. Um, so I understand that it's it's a vastly complex uh, situation. It's, a, it's one of those excruciatingly dynamic things that you can't nuance. And I think that's part of the problem is people try to, to broad or blanket label things and, and come up with solutions that are quite blanketed as opposed to the nuances. Right. Um, yeah. You mentioned the thing with credit scores. Um, with your blog and the knowledge that you've learned, I'm going to ask a question and it's, it's kind of a, a dumb question, but it's something I just wanted to ask. Yeah. It's incredibly difficult to develop a credit score and it takes a lot of years to build up that, that perfect credit rating, you know, 700, whatever, but fraud, uh, 
credit scores are about as fragile as porcelain. And then they shatter, you drop down to the bottom, and it takes forever and even longer to build it up. Why is, I guess, why is that? Why is credit such a, a fickle thing? It's a good question. It's a loaded question. <laughs> uh, so there's a couple, there are a couple answers. I mean, the, the one answer is just kind of the, the answer on its face, kind of the nuts and bolts, nuts and bolts logistics of, of what goes into a credit score, which might be part of your question. Um, but then the other answer I think of is why exactly is the system set up this way? Right. Kind of like going a bit of a level, level deeper. So for some of your listeners who might not know, um, the nuts and bolts, your credit score is is based on typically pe most people cite it. There are five different inputs that go into the credit score. There's your payment history, your credit utilization, uh, the length of your credit history, the mix of your credit types, and then the recent uses of your credit. So going through those real quick explanation one by one, the easy one is the length of your credit score. It's not the most important, but you know, how long have you had uh, credit? Uh, mix of credit types is another one that's not incredibly important. You know, okay, a credit card, a mortgage, student loan, car loan, different types of credit. I guess it, it shows the credit industry that you can, you can balance a few different types of loans at once. I'm not exactly sure what the, the rationale is there. Uh, the recent applications or new credit, some people call it, is something that's sometimes counted against you. If, if a, someone looks at your credit history, Michael, and says, man, in the last year, Michael's applied for 30 different loans. What's going on there? It's a little fishy. Like, why, why, is he, why does he need all this money? The more you apply for new credit, the more it counts against you. That makes sense. Now, that said, yeah, I, I, think, it, I think so, too. Um, now, those three inputs count combined. Those three inputs count less than these next two do individually. So uh, payment history is basically, do you make uh, your minimum payment at least on time every month or every time it's due? Uh, and then credit utilization is out of the uh, total credit that lenders have allowed you to have, how much are you using? The more you use, the worse it is. Because their their justification is well, if if Michael is borrowing all this money, he might be in some uh, dire personal finance straits. Right. And if he's in if he's having money trouble, that makes him less enticing to lend to. Okay. There's, so those, there's, sorry, there was a few things that you yeah. popped off. Um, yeah. That makes sense, and I agree. You know, if you're looking at somebody's credit history and they've got a large number of, of inquiries on their credit. Do you think that it's, do you think we should change a few things in that game where, you know, you always seem to get hit on a credit score, even on an inquiry. And I, like, you know, like I said, it, I understand if you're, if you're doing, you know, 10, 12 inquiries in a, in a month, but if it's like once or twice every four to six months, you still get a hit on that. Right. Um, you think we should be anything we can do to, to change that or that the government should do to, to change how credit scores are done? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I do think so. I, I think I'm in agreement with you here. Um, it, it does seem a little petty for lack of a better term to, uh, offer to lend money to people, uh, and simultaneously hold it against them when they make an inquiry about borrowing that money that you're lending. 
Right. And that's essentially what's happening. Uh, there's a, a strange relationship between the credit industry and, and the people who actually borrow money on credit where <laughs> the, the credit industry can't exactly survive unless there are people borrowing money. Right. Uh, and, and we all kind of understand that there are ways to irresponsibly borrow money. Uh, but for that one input that you talked about, the act of simply, the simple act of asking for money, if you do it too much, will be counted against you. And, and that does feel a little odd. Um, I don't know that the nuts and bolts specifics deeper than that. You know, is it, is it three inquiries a year? Is it 10? What's the limit? Um, so that one is a little strange. Um, going back to your original question, you mentioned the fragility of credit scores and how your credit score can shatter like porcelain with one mistake. Um, oftentimes that mistake is made in the, the payment history portion of your credit score, which I think is either, I think it's 35 or 40%. I want to say 35% of your credit score is made up of payment history where it feels like if you miss one payment, what would have been a full 35 out of 35 score or something like that just gets chopped in half or worse. And now it's like, Oh, well, Michael missed a payment. Now he gets a 10 out of 35. <laughs> um, and yeah, and, and I don't think uh, that doesn't really feel right either. I think some lenders are trying to differentiate themselves by saying, Oh, if you, you know, your first missed payment, we don't hold it against you. They're, they're trying to say, we understand that people mess up. Um, especially in this world that's full of automation and then sometimes things don't quite go right. You know, things, your, your bank forgets to send money to your credit company and you miss a payment, those kind of things. Um, but the fact that the system is set up such that such a small mistake can have such, uh, huge ripples down the line, right? right? So such a small mistake can hurt your credit score that hurt credit score now means instead of getting a 2.5% interest rate on your mortgage, you get a four and a half percent interest rate on your mortgage. Your house costs half a million dollars. It's going to cost, that's going to cost you $200,000 in interest payments. Yeah. Right. And, and why? Because you, you missed one payment on your $300 balance on a credit card when you were in college. Like it does not seem like the punishment necessarily fits the crime. Seems pretty predatory in, in a lot of aspects. <laughs> right. I mean, like it's you were saying, word. you know, you, you stumble, but it literally takes years to get it back to where it was. Right. And, and I think one of the things that I've noticed, you know, looking over my own document is the amount of money that, you know, using my mortgage as a perfect example, I think I pay almost as much in interest for my mortgage as I do for the principal, which... Yep is kind of absurd, absurd. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's a matter of trying to, it seems like it's just a matter of keeping people in this perpetual debt. And you know, the, the American dream is to, to live free and clear and right. And stuff like that. But right. Uh, not to toot my own horn too much. I'm, I'm trying to get an article published this Friday, uh, that talks a little bit about student loans, student loan crisis. And as it's in the news now, um, kind of this, you know, do we forgive student loans? Or not. So I'm going to try to address that question a little bit uh, this Friday. But care to share a little into that? <laughs> sure, sure. Because I'd, I'd love, love to know to. where your stance is on it. Because I yeah. know where I stand on it, and I'm, I'm yeah. interested in where you are. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd be happy to share that. Um, oh, 
Oh, so what I, what one one little blurb I have in that article is how I think if most people looked at all the details, they would see how the uh, financing industry, the lending industries in our country, whether it's personal or business lending, is important. How it quote unquote greases the wheels, how it provides opportunities to people who might not otherwise have them. You know, I don't have two hundred thousand dollars to buy a house but someone's willing to give me that money so I can buy a house and I, I have to repay them over time. Uh, I didn't have a hundred thousand dollars to go to college. Well, you know, we won't get into the nuts and bolts of my own college <laughs> loans, but I didn't have the money to go to college, right. but someone was willing to lend me that money and then I paid them back. I think most people would agree on its face. That's a good thing that, that we have that lending. Now it's just about the back end. It's, it's about, you know, do people know what they're signing up for? Is the education there to inform people what they're signing up for? Uh, it's a little questionable. Um, and then, like you said, how the how the, the interest rates and the credit scores can work. Um, it, it can be it can certainly be predatory at times. And, and we've seen blatant examples of predatory lending. I mean, you can, you can see them daily if you want to. But, right. you know, things like the 2008 mortgage crisis just stands out as just predatory, terrible loans. Speaking specifically about student loans, I mean, that industry yeah. seems to thrive on, the only really way I can describe it is like a predator. I mean, they, they are approaching vulnerable kids because that's what they are sometimes, or, you know, 17, 18 year old kids. It's to my knowledge, the only type of debt that you can accrue that's not, we'll call it, extinguished upon death <laughs> right um which right. to me is absurd i understand right. and i wholeheartedly agree that there, there is a principle and a need for credit um you know, not i don't know very many people that could just go out and buy a car um a brand new car or, or a house for that matter with the money that they have in the bank so yes there's there's definitely a need for having you know lenders but a lot of it does seem to be pretty predatory. And then you can get into the, the whole avenue of, of collections. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, there was a show that did a, a big kind of expose on collections and how much of a sham that is to a degree where they can destroy people's credit even after people have documented and shown documents that they've paid wherever that particular debt is off. It's been charged off, but then they sell it to another company and now you've got to fight the whole battle again which is something that I've personally experienced. Yeah. Um, what do you think, and I understand that I'm, I'm asking these questions towards you, um, and I don't expect you to necessarily have all the answers. <laughs> Throw it out there real quick. Um, what do you think we could do to mitigate the predatory nature of student loans specifically and even some of that, uh, the other stuff that goes on? Yeah. Uh, you hit on a great point early on, which is um, that student loans are fairly unique in that we are letting 17 and 18 year olds borrow six figures of, <laughs> in U.S. dollars, um, and and sometimes sometimes they might not be fully aware of what they're getting into. Of course, there are counter arguments, and people would say, "Well, you know." The same can be said for any loan. The same could be said for a 30-year-old getting a mortgage. They might not know what they're signing up for. Um, yeah, there, there might be some merit to that argument. Um, 
one thing that stands out to me though in in solving the the crisis, if you want to call it that, it's what your was what your first question was, Michael, which is, I mean, how do we better educate kids on uh, the extent of a loan and the life of a loan? Um, I think one thing, some of my math is going to be a little wrong, so I'm sure someone out there can can check my numbers for me. But if you borrow $100,000 at like a 5 or 6% student loan, you're going to be paying $1,000 a month for like the next 15 years. Something along those lines, right? That's insane. So it's, it's like, you know, how can you ask a 17-year-old to say, all right, I want you to think back to kindergarten, you know, your first day in Mrs. Johnson's class when, when Bobby spilled his milk on your lap. Think back to that day in kindergarten. And now imagine every day, from then until now, or every month from then until now, you've been paying $1,000 to pay off your loan. Well, that's 12 years of paying loans. Now you have another three, right? It's hard to wrap your head around uh, some of this debt. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think 25-year-olds and 30-year-olds signing up for mortgages can better or better equipped to wrap their heads around some of that debt. Um. So, yeah, I, I mean, I really do think it starts there. I was pretty lucky in that, you know, I had uh, parents who were pretty aware of how debt worked and tried to inform me how debt worked. Um, I got a very generous scholarship from the University of Rochester here in, in Rochester, New York, where I still live, That so I didn't have to pay full price. Um, and then my, my student loans ended up being kind of in the, in the mid five figures, the, the lower mid five figures, which was a manageable amount for me because uh, I graduated with an engineering degree and I still work as an engineer. It really, it does help pay the bills. Right. Um, that kind of brings me to another thing that we can teach 17 year olds is not just the extent of loans, but also, you know, tell me your five year plan or tell me your 10 year plan. So you're going to go to college, you're going to go there for four years what are you going to do after that? Because if the answer is, you know, well, I really want to go to Harvard and then I'm going to become a kindergarten teacher. <laughs> Both of my parents were teachers. I think teachers are uh, indispensable resource to our country. I think education is highly valuable. But if you have to borrow $150,000 to go to Harvard and then you go teach and you start at $40,000 a year, that's a tough equation to square yeah. Right. And yeah. It, and it's it's hard to tell someone, I'm sorry, that dream might not work. Um, but I think encouraging that dream and then saying, by the way, the next 15 years, you are going to, well, if, if they become a teacher, they might get a, a federal program that helps pay off that debt. I think it's like a 10 year federal yeah. program that might help them as a public worker. Um, but again, but that, that kind of detail might flesh out in the hey, let's sit down at age 17 and put together a plan to figure out what your next 10 years look like. So perhaps, it, yeah. no, sorry, so no, no, no. Adding, <laughs> adding to your, uh, your, your curriculum for, for school, maybe senior year is uh, developing your five and 10 year plan to make sure that things, you know, if you want to get to, to B, you have your right. course plotted the right way. Right. I think brutal honesty is, is crucial as well. You know, yeah. Telling a kid, yeah, it's a great dream to have, but you know, if that's your goal, maybe finding another path, another route, not to deter the goal, but altering course. You know, if you right. if you know you want to be a kindergarten teacher, you don't have to go to Harvard to become a right. kindergarten teacher. So, right, um, I think that right. might be something that could be a way to mitigate some of the 
an insane burden that some of these kids are going through. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one stat, I wish I had a better statistic to share with your readers. Um, it's something that I've heard multiple times and is on my notes of something I, I need to research and write about before Friday is that actually a lot of student loan debt is held by people who did not complete a degree. And then that's this whole, right, this whole kind of, this whole portion, this, this large fraction of student loan debt. I'm not sure if it's the majority or not, um, but it's the idea that people borrow money, they go to school for two years, for one reason or another, they don't finish their degree, and now they're saying, well, I don't necessarily have the skills to make forty or sixty or $100,000 a year. I only have the skills to, you know, work uh, a maybe a, a wage job where I'm only making 15 or $20 an hour. And yet I'm still saddled with this $60,000 debt because I borrowed these student loans. Um, so that's, that's another thing worth considering. It's not always the people who finish school and, and get a degree and are working in a professional life. It's also, there's a whole uh, a swath of people who maybe were fed the, the idea that they had to go to college, right? That college was their way of the future. Yeah. And and somewhere in that process, the dream kind of shattered and now they're left picking up those porcelain pieces. Right. And I'm I'm of the age where, you know, my options that were told to me is, oh, there is no option. You have to go to college. That's just yeah. what you have to do. Regardless of, you know, your financial standing is you have to go to college. You have to figure it a way out. I did not. Um, my high school, I went to our vocational school. I went to mm -hmm. school to be an electrician and. Mm -hmm. I did that, so I I learned a trade, yeah. Um, which I think, again, going back to the brutal honesty of of teaching our seniors, what options are really out there? You know, college isn't necessarily or doesn't necessarily have to be the next step. Right. Go live your life. You know, work a wage job for a little bit, develop some life experience. You know, live a little bit, party a little bit, kind of get that out of your system. So when you decide that you want to go to college. You kind of get rid of the stuff, or at least some of the stuff that some of the people that fail out of their freshman year do. You know, they're, they're hard partying and they effectively flunk out. Right. You, know, you get that out of your system early, and then you can go back and really buckle down. I mean, for me, right. I didn't start my college degree until late twenties or early thirties, mm -hmm. um, and it was really just a matter of. Um, kind of necessity, but I was also fortunate in a position where my education was paid for, for the large bulk of it. Right. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of, of teaching kids, giving kids the options and, and helping them set up that roadmap for their success. You know, if they want to be uh, a mechanical engineer, hey, these are the best options for you to, to work towards, you know, get your grades good. You know, here's the better schools and, you know, give them schools in a couple different price ranges. This is a really good school that's, you know, you don't have to pay as much or a really top-notch school that you're going to pay out the nose for. Right. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you're, you're right on. You're right on. Uh, I do think we could it, – it's a, like a personal finance adjacent topic because uh, it has to do with education and it has to do with your job is – we could do a better job of doing, I feel like Mike Rowe is like the celebrity endorser of this idea, which is teach people that vocations are a perfectly viable option. They're um, needed now. Absolutely. Because they absolutely needed. There was such a drive of pushing people to go straight to college that, you know, there's 
you know, there's always going to be a need for plumbers, electricians, right. mechanics, you know, the, yeah. the, the quote unquote blue collar type jobs, which if you've worked the trades, right, you know that it's not a low intelligence kind of thing. And that's, right. you know, the, the, the white collar industries tend to kind of put their nose up towards these things, but they're required. You know, if you Absolutely. don't know how to build a house the right way, it's going to fall down. You don't Absolutely. know how to plumb the right way. You're going to have a lot of problems. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Push I, your kids uh, to it. Absolutely. I'd give a shout out right now to my brother whose podcast studio I'm sitting in, Ian Kramer, former host of the Ian Kramer podcast. Um, but he, he recently actually used the, the COVID crisis. He got furloughed from his professional job uh, working here in a local uh, University of Rochester medical system and volunteered for a, a contractor and carpenter and uh, construction company because he really likes working with his hands. Yeah, He really likes, you know, the idea of gutting a bathroom, gutting a kitchen, doing a full uh, remodel and looking at it after a week and saying, I did that. It looks beautiful. The customer's overjoyed. Uh, and then There's he an segued from of accomplishment with that. <laughs> right. I bet. I bet. I mean, I, I feel accomplished uh, blowing the leaves out of my yard uh, <laughs> this fall. You know what I mean? I can't imagine putting together something that nice. Um, and he segued that volunteer role into now he, he quit his job with the University of Rochester and is doing uh, contracting and carpentry full time. And he loves it. He loves it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's a huge sense of accomplishment. Like you said, it's a vitally important job uh, that, that does get, I think, overlooked, uh, which is, yeah, which is too bad. But so. Enough of the serious talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to throw a couple questions your way. Absolutely. That are ranging from crazy to not so crazy. Uh, let's go with the first one. How many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? I love this question. <laughs> uh, in high school, I was part of Science Olympiad, and I participated in an event called Fermi Questions. The famous physicist Enrico Fermi was notoriously talented at uh, estimating wild numbers. Um, and so you'd say, you know, oh, Enrico, you know, how, how many grains of sand uh, could fit inside of the Empire State Building? And he would just, he would think about a grain of sand. He would think about the size of the building. He would kind of scale up in powers of 10 and come up with a reasonable answer. Um, so how many chickens would it take to kill an elephant? Um, I, I mean, the answer is a lot. Uh, <laughs> I think, I think 10,000 could do it pretty easily. Do I think a thousand chickens, a thousand mad chickens? I think a right, hundred chickens. I don't, Think would be enough. I just think the elephant could pick it off with a pick them off with his trunk too quickly. So I'm going to go somewhere between a hundred and a thousand, maybe, maybe seven hundred. I, I think it might have to be over a thousand because at some point yeah. you're just going to get to a point where they they're only going to get X number of surface volume of pecking area, and I'm yeah. not quite sure that their beaks are going to get through the skin. But I, that's, I mean, that's, in the, that's no, that's fair. That's fair. Uh, I'm going to say for the answer for that, that I don't think that would be possible regardless of how many chickens are involved. <laughs> uh, next question. What slogan or jingle have you stuck, have you had stuck in your head forever? Oh, and you can pass um, on any of these that don't. That's a good, I mean, some, some that stick out from being a kid, just ones that haven't changed. I mean, the Folgers, 
jingle has not changed, I think, since I was a kid. And spent I spent a lot of early mornings, weekend mornings, just watching random stuff on TV. And that's when they probably advertise coffee is when it's like 8 a.m. and you wish you were drinking some. So, yeah, right. The best part of waking, waking up, up is Folgers, Folgers in your cup. <laughs> I mean, I could sing for you, Michael. I won't <laughs> torture you, but. I think for me, it's the Toys R Us. It's just going to forever be in my head. What was that one? <clears throat> yeah, now I'm going to I'm gonna mess it up. <laughs> but I don't want to grow up. I just um, I want to be a Toys R Us kid. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, that rings a bell. <clears throat> like a good jingle should. <laughs> And I'm, uh, I'm showing my age with that one. Is there any word or phrase that you overuse? I get made fun of for a couple. Um, I've probably said it multiple times on this podcast. It's my intro into answers, which is someone asks me a question and I say, yeah. So, <laughs> boom. So it's yeah, so. Uh, I know my, my girlfriend makes fun of me for that. I think her brother is the first one who's like, Jesse says yeah so a lot. And when he pointed that out, I was like, oh, yeah, so like a idiosyncrasy. That was my answer <laughs> to him is using it. So, Yeah, I think once it's funny when you say something a lot, and, and I know there's a lot of things that I say a lot, <laughs> and I don't know it or I'm not conscious of it until somebody goes, you realize you say that a lot, and then I'll start you know, <laughs> listening to myself going, wow, I really do sound like a broken record with that. <laughs> which person do you, which living person do you, you admire the most? So I wrote an article a few months ago about, um, I had just finished a book by Tim Ferriss called Tools of Titans, Free Advertising for Tim. It's a good book. Uh, the Titans are these people who he interviews, if you're not familiar with Tim Ferriss and in the book, he shares the things that have made them successful, their tools. And I thought to myself, well, there are some people in my own life who are worthy of admiration and who are doing cool things. I, honestly, Michael, I mean, people like you, people who are like, you know what, I'm just going to do so. I'm just going to start my own podcast. I'm just going to start my own small business, yeah. things like that. So I interviewed them. I wrote about some of the things that they found successful, published an article. It was great. Um, but, the person who came to mind from your admiration question combined with maybe my small town answer from your other question is uh, this high school soccer coach from my small town who I didn't even play for. I didn't play soccer for the guy. And yet I think he's incredibly worthy of admiration uh, because for, for 50 years he poured his heart and soul into coaching youth sports in my area uh, he made an impact on dozens, if not hundreds, of of young men and women um, who who still kind of have all these fond memories of Coach Hartley, Coach Don Hartley, Don Hartley, Red Creek Soccer. Um, and, and that's it. And, and that's it. You know, he just made a small town impact on tons of people. And I think, I hope that all of our listeners, all of your listeners can can think of some people like that in their own lives who they're not superheroes, they're not celebrities, right? They're not making millions, let alone six figures, but they're just doing something they love and making such a positive impact on the people who are in their life. Um, I think maybe if we had some more of that, we'd be, we'd all be better for it. Agreed. I think that was a really good answer. I, I, I agree <laughs> with that. I think coaches and, and obviously um 
for people who know me, I'm a little biased with my thought on coaches. I, I coach youth sports. I coach wrestling for middle school. Nice. Um, I coach youth hockey, uh, ice hockey. So I, I have an affinity for other coaches that you can see their passion in what they do. It's They're doing it not for the few bucks that they might make for it, but because they genuinely love the sport that they're coaching and they they want to be an ambassador to it. I mean, that, that's right. my perspective. That's my take, and that's kind of my driving force uh, when I coach. But I like the fact that you went with the coach. So Yeah, phenomenal. <laughs> that's good. So I think I've stolen close to an hour of your time. Where can people read your blog and, and follow up on you? Sure. Um, so my blog is called The Best Interest from a Benjamin Franklin quote, an investment in knowledge pays the best interest. So you can find it at bestinterest.blog, bestinterest.blog. Uh, or if you just, if you Google Jesse Kramer blog or best interest blog, uh, I've, after a couple of years, Google now recognizes me and I'm on the first page. Nice. Um, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, my, if you Google or if you Twitter, Jesse Kramer, J-E-S-S-E-C-R-A-M-E-R, I, my Twitter handle, I think, is bestinterest underscore JC. I will be sure to make sure I throw all those links into the uh, the show notes for you. Excellent. Thank you, Michael. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. This you was a lot on. of fun. I'm glad you yeah, had man. fun. I had fun, too. This was <clears> awesome. Uh, any parting words? Um, you know, I wish I had some some masterful wisdom to impart, but but no, I think, you know, hopefully... Uh, Hopefully you folks learned something today and, and, and feel free to reach out to me on Twitter, on the blog. Uh, if, even if you have one of my favorite things to do is answer readers questions. Last week, a reader asked me about 529 plans, uh, which are college savings plans. And I, I wrote an article about 529 plans. So nice. I'm, I'm happy to help. And, and, and it's what I love to do. So awesome. Well, again, thank you very much for your time and your insight and uh, stay safe and healthy. Excellent. Cheers, Michael. Same to you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon. Send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.